Hello and welcome to another episode of the R Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua. I am your host. And today's episode is continuing on a series we've been doing on corruption and conspiracy, especially related to governments. And I have focused on, at least the first episode focused on ideologies like eugenics and transhumanism and the like. And then the next episode was all quotes and excerpts from people of influence, presidents, uh, people very high up like the Rockefellers and people of that nature. So that was that episode, and I did some commentary on some of those quotes and things. And although that may not sound like much, if you didn't listen to that, there is a lot of very spicy material in there that is definitely worth a listen. Then in the previous episode from this, I talked about some specific people and groups, such as Cecil Rhodes and the Roundtable Groups and the Rothschilds. I actually didn't get into the Rockefellers all that much, although they, of course, get mentioned, and groups like Council on Foreign Relations, CIA, that kind of thing. And overall, these episodes have been fairly macro, so I didn't go into detail on all of these different things, but I touched on those things and brought that into modern time with a bit of a context and background with the Russia-Ukraine situation. And now we are in what I think is the final episode of this short series on corruption and conspiracy. So if you like what you are hearing and you're interested in more, I did a series on corruption and conspiracy back in season one, and that series was much more details-oriented. So I went into specific examples of some of these operations, such as Operation Northwoods was one that I believe I mentioned last week. And if not, I definitely mentioned it before. But I go into things like MK Ultra and some very specific examples and kind of the, the situations and the people involved and all of that kind of stuff. So if you want something that's a little more detailed, go back to season one and listen to those episodes. These ones are more from a macro perspective and trying to see how all of this stuff ties together. So I'm touching on lots of different things, lots of different names and things of that nature, but I'm not really going into huge amounts of detail on any of those. So with that in mind, the episode that I am recording right now that you are listening to is mostly on war, oil, and false flags with a little bit of drugs thrown in there as well. So it should be a very interesting episode. And I'm also going to tie in this concept of the gods of the East and the gods of the West. And I think that's one that really helps with understanding what's going on, especially today. So ideally, at the end of this episode, I'll get more into detail about what's going on in the modern time. So when I recorded the episodes in season one, the Russia-Ukraine conflict was not going on. And depending on when you're listening to this, if World War III has broken out since the time I recorded this, that obviously has not happened yet either. So I'm going to bring us more up to date in the current context with all of these things as a framework, all of the macro information I've gone over the past few episodes in this episode, and should really be able to do a really good job at better understanding what's going on right now. So with that, I will go ahead and start off with this concept of the gods. So if you are a longtime listener and you remember back when Vin Armani came on and did an interview and I did some follow-up episodes with that, 
I think he brought it up and I elaborated on it some more, but it's this idea of gods being over territories. So this is an idea that's not just Christian. You do have some verses in the Bible where God allots the nations to the Elohim, which is the word for gods. And you have this idea of a council, a God, uh, God, the most high God, the God of the Christian Bible, that God is like no other. That God is one and there is none equal to him, according to scriptures. However, it does not say that there are no other gods. There's no other gods before him, but there are other gods. It actually clearly says that there are other gods. These gods are other spiritual beings that the Most High God has put in charge of certain things and places and territories, and that was well understood with the Hebrews and with the other cultures at the time of the Hebrews, if we are referring back to the biblical texts. And so they thought this, as well as the people that followed uh, Baal and Molech and all of these other gods, each group, each uh, nation or people group had a different god or different gods. And these gods were gods over certain uh, things such as war or sex or things of that nature, the economy and the harvest or they were gods over certain territories. Like you have, like in the Bible, you get a reference to the prince of Persia. And I forget what the other prince was. It's prince of Persia and another prince of a different territory as well. And so you have this idea. And then Yahweh, the most high God, would have been the God over Israel, the nation Israel. And so each of these people groups and each of these territories and regions have gods. And those gods have a lot to do with what goes on in their territory. And if you make those gods mad, then things in your territory will not go well. You might have an invasion into your territory, or your crops might not go well. You might not get rain, and vice versa. If your gods are happy with you, then you will be blessed in your area that your gods look after and are in control of. And biblically, again, if you go back to the Christian perspective, this actually is true as well to an extent. So God did allot the nations to certain Elohim. So basically, he stepped back and let these spiritual beings, the Elohim, however you want to describe them, whether they're angels or demons or gods or whatever, I'll refer to them as gods because that's, I guess, in the grand context of humanity, that's usually what they're referred to as. And so these gods had their different territories that God basically let them run. So they were in charge of their territories. However, according to biblical scripture, they decided to start accepting worship from the people and started to turn away from what their job was for the Most High God. You even have that story of the Watchers uh, having relations with the women, uh, human women, and the Nephilim that came from that, and lots of different things that go into that. But you also have this story in a lot of other ancient cultures. If you go back to the other stories of the gods, there typically was this same story and the same theme that some gods rebelled against whoever was the most high god of that time, according to whichever mythology you're looking at. So uh, with the Greek gods, with the Roman gods, with the Assyrian gods, 
all of these different things. You look at Molech and um, the story of Baal, and there is a whole set of stories that those cultures passed down. All of these had this succession myth where you had a god or an ultimate being, so to say, that really was on top. But then he got overthrown, typically by his son, but definitely overthrown by another lesser god, and that god became the most high god. So, for example, that's how Baal became the supreme god of his territory, was by overthrowing another most high god. So there's this aspect of rebellion. You have this story with uh, Greek mythology where you have Prometheus that gives fire to the humans, and that is an act of rebellion against his own kind, against the gods, and that caused a lot of strife there. And again, it's the same story in the Christian Bible where you have the gods that are allotted these territories and nations, they rebel against the Most High God, and as that happens, then they start to take ultimate control, so to say, ultimate authority over those regions apart from the Most High God. But but typically, if if you follow that train of thought, and that is something that makes sense to you, then I'm sure you can imagine how if you had a lesser God take over for a greater God, they might tell the story a little differently. They might say that now they are the Supreme God even if that may not be the case. And so they will probably uh, change and alter the story in a way that sounds the best for them. So again, all of these ancient stories and mythologies and religions, they all have this basis. They all have these patterns and these stories and these narratives that are very, very similar at their core. And so going from that idea, and you don't have to believe that that is true, but what I want you to see is that that is the way a lot of humanity has viewed humanity as a whole and the world as a whole for millennia. That has been one of the most common frameworks for how people understand the world and how the world works. And I am going to use that framework because it applies very well to the things we're talking about and to modern times. And again, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that there truly are spiritual entities that are over the West and over the East, but it could. And so you can look at that either way, depending on whatever flavor that you want to follow. So with this, the idea that there are gods over territories, this theme. So if you apply that to a lot of what's gone on in recent modern history, especially and currently, you have this idea of the gods of the West versus the gods of the East. And if you remember in the previous episode and the one before that, I did reference Cecil Rhodes and Carol Quigley both talked about this about how the ultimate goal for them was to bring the rest of the world under the dominion of the English-speaking West. And to them, that was Britain and America. So everybody should be under Britain and America. These are the white English-speaking, to them, the greater races of the world, and they need to subject the lesser races to their rule because they were the elites and they were the ones that should run things and have all the wealth and the power, the control, and that should extend to the entire world, according to them. That was their thought. And so this idea of the gods of the West or of the West as a whole, that is typically the U.S. and Britain. Then when you shift over to the other side, you have the East, which historically has been the areas of like Germany and Russia and China and these areas in that 
part of the world. And even the Middle East is kind of split, but mostly towards the east. And so these are the uh, territories, these are the regions, these are the gods that are set against and set in opposition to the gods of the West. And so there's this battle that's going on between the East and the West. And with the West, again, that is where you get the roundtable groups of Cecil Rhodes, you get the Rothschilds, you get the Rockefellers, you get the Council on Foreign Relations, all of these different groups and people, these are all ideas that come out of the West, even things like eugenics that comes out of the West, mostly. And all of this is Western thought. And the goal, again, is to maximize power, maximize influence, maximize wealth. You have the merchants from the age of economics, which is the age we are coming out of. And that's been more modern history, has been the age of economics. And the merchant class was... Uh, had a lot to do with this. The merchant class was on top as far as the West is concerned. And uh, that was actually how a lot of the East got subjected to the West. So if you look at something like the Opium Wars, where China was actually, uh, in a lot of ways, they were better off than Europe. And the Europeans came to trade with them. I think it was the East India Company, if I remember right, but I'm not positive on that. It might have been one of the others like it, or the forerunners. But it was... um, a group of merchants that came over to trade with the Chinese, and the Chinese basically said, we don't want your trinkets. Like, we don't need that crap. Like, we've got so much more and better stuff. We don't need your stuff. And to make a long story short, basically, the West, or the the British, ended up getting the Chinese people addicted to opium and smuggling in all kinds of opium, getting them addicted. The emperor was not very happy with this, and over the course of time, sparked a war in which the West defeated the East. And for example, that's where you get Hong Kong. But going back to this idea of the West versus the East, and I am highlighting the West since that would be where the U.S. is contained, and I am in the U.S., and that's usually the perspective here. Most of my listeners are in what would be considered the West as well. And I mentioned how the merchants were a big factor. And again, we're talking about this age of economics, um, the beginning of modern history and bringing us up into the time frame, the context, the systems that we live under today. And the merchants were part of that, which makes sense. It's the age of economics and the merchant class would be the one to rule that. And in addition to the merchants, a merchant could be a broad archetype. And you could have under that bankers, you could have the robber barons, you could even include the military industrial complex, not necessary necessarily the military specifically, but more the military industrial complex with the corporations that are behind that and the movers and shakers behind the scenes, the politicians, all of that. It's all tied into uh, this archetype of the merchant class. And guess what? These are where the most influential groups and people come from. That's where the Rockefellers come from. They are robber barons and the Carnegies and the Rothschilds. They are bankers. And then you get J.P. Morgan, the banker. And you get all of these different people who stem from this archetype of the merchant. And with these merchants, and you could use this framework of the gods, the gods of the West. And you could either say 
that they're filling this archetype of the gods. And this archetype is filled by different classes throughout different ages. So again, the age of economics would be the merchant class, just like the age of science, which is the age we are arguably in right now or headed into, that would be run by the scientist, the engineer, the technician. And uh, there are these different archetypes. And so uh, they are still playing this role of the gods of a certain area or a certain culture or a certain region or a certain thing. And so these uh, merchants are the ones playing that role of the gods of the West. Or another way to look at this would be that there truly are spiritual entities that are behind these types of things and these people, and whether knowingly or unknowingly, these people, these groups, these movements are getting steered by some sort of spiritual entities that have this battle and opposition going on between them. So that's another way to look at it. Either way, though, it is basically the same story. Now, with the gods of the West in the age of economics, what are they using to influence and to gain control? They want maximum power, control, influence, wealth, these types of things. Again, all tied in with the the archetype of the merchant and the age of economics. And so what they're using, these things are related to all of that. And that would be things like money, oil, drugs, and governments. And governments are used in order to gain access to and gain control of regulation and war. And these are, again, just tools that are used by uh, the gods and the merchants. So an example of this might be uh, Ford versus Rockefeller. And Henry Ford, he had developed an engine that he thought would have been superior that ran on alcohol. And the idea was that any farmer could grow things and distill that down into alcohol and basically grow his own fuel. And this would lead to more independence and self-sufficiency, these types of things. And he thought that was better. However, Rockefeller and Standard Oil believed that oil should be the thing that powers these new vehicles that are becoming mainstream, and they seem as though they will be the future. And they want this future to be built on oil because they are the rulers of oil. And so uh, with this, there's this battle going on, and Ford seemed like he was going to win at first. However, then the Rockefellers used government and regulation. They also used some cultural movements and religion. They used their money. And with this, they pushed things like prohibition and the evils of alcohol. They uh, imposed a lot of regulations on alcohol and even alcohol that was made for running engines. It had to meet very strict standards. You had to add certain things to it to make it poisonous so people wouldn't decide to drink it because alcohol is evil, these types of things. And so that basically made alcohol the the option that was not able to win. It could not compete in that environment. Even though in a free and open environment, it definitely was in the lead and probably would have gained dominance, but not in this environment. Not when you're going against the robber barons. Not when you're going against the gods of the West. Because the gods will use money, oil, drugs, governments. They will use these things in order to 
have the initiatives, the control, the wealth that they want and desire. And they will typically get that, as history has shown us. I want to go ahead and shift into some more specifics and shift into this idea of war, oil, false flags, and drugs, because that is the theme of this episode. But I want you to keep that framework that I've set up up until now, what I've been discussing about the gods of the East and the West and the idea of the gods and the merchants running things in this, in the context of this age of economics and them using the money, the oil, drugs, governments, and through governments, regulation, and war in order to gain their control, their influence, their wealth. And so keep all of that in mind as I shift now into the modern wars. And the one that I would probably start with, or at least at first comes to mind to me, would be the Spanish-American War. And this would be what really ended up being the death nail for Spain, which still at the time had some competition to the Western gods. So while I'm not going to read very many quotes or excerpts this time, like I did a few episodes ago, I do have this one uh, write-up that I found that I couldn't really find a way to pull out just a quote or two. So I'm just going to read a few paragraphs because it really has a lot to do with all of this. And it, I think, frames it very well. And especially with the context that I've laid out, I think that will be apparent. So it goes like this. Sugar seems ordinary today, but long ago its profitability earned the nickname white gold, much as oil, dominated by the Rockefeller's standard oil, was called black gold. Lundberg writes of the Spanish-American War that, quote, the Rockefeller-Stillman National City Bank benefited most directly from it, for Cuba, the Philippines, and indeed all of Latin America soon afterwards became dotted with national city branches, and the Cuban sugar industry gravitated into national cities' hands, end quote. William Guy Carr affirmed the pawns in the game, or affirmed in the book Pawns in the Game, Quote, National City Bank owned and controlled Cuba's sugar industry when the war ended. End quote. Mark Twain also wrote, quote, How our hearts burned with indignation against the atrocious Spaniards, but when the smoke was over, the dead buried, and the cost of the war came back to the people in an increase in the price of commodities and rent, that is, when we sobered up from our patriotic spree, it suddenly dawned on us that the cause of the Spanish-American War was the price of sugar. End quote. Major Smedley Butler was, at the time of his death in 1940, the most decorated Marine in American history. In his book, War is a Racket, he revealed, quote, and I think I've used this quote before in the past, so you should recognize it, I have spent 34 years in active service as a member of the Marine Corps, and during that period, I spent most of my time being a high-class muscle man for big business, for Wall Street, and for the bankers. In short, I was a racketeer for capitalism. I helped make Mexico safe for American oil interests in 1914. I helped make Haiti and Cuba a decent place for the National City Bank to collect revenues. End quote. As relations warmed, a new organization formed in July 1898, the Anglo-American League, with branches in the United States and England. The League led to the founding of the secretive Pilgrim Society in 1902. So as a side note, I, I think I had a quote 
about the Pilgrim Society back in episode one when I did that series on corruption and conspiracy. Not positive on that, though. I haven't dug into them as much as I probably should, but I I think I do reference that. But you also uh, should recognize the Anglo-American League, the whole idea of the territory of the gods of the West. It's the Western English-speaking world, the Anglo-American League. That's what it is. And keep in mind the date. 1902 was the Pilgrim Society. 1898 was the Anglo-American League. These are both before the time period of Council on Foreign Relations and a lot of the other groups I mentioned last time, which actually I think comes up in this last paragraph here. So, Students of conspiracy and the New World Order often hear of the Council on Foreign Relations, Britain's Royal Institute of International Affairs, the Trilateral Commission, and Bilderbergers. Receiving less attention, though predating them all, is the Pilgrim Society. Ostensibly formed to promote goodwill between the United States and Britain, its membership consists of the upper crust from government, business, banking, and media in both countries. Members today include luminaries ranging from David Rockefeller to Queen Elizabeth II. Its earliest members included Spanish-American War generals Joseph Wheeler and Leonard Wood, along with a who's who of Wall Street monopolists and Federal Reserve founders, John D. Rockefeller Jr., Andrew Carnegie, Paul Warburg, Jacob Schiff, Nelson Aldrich, and Frank Vanderlip. J.P. Morgan was the society's first vice president. In Britain, early members included Lord Salisbury, powerful financier Nathan Rothschild, Bank of England Governor Montague Norman, world government advocate Philip Kerr, and Winston Churchill, whose 1895 visit to Cuba sparked controversy in England, where he was accused of meddling in non-British affairs. The Pilgrim Society's motto is, and forgive my pronunciation here, hic et ubique, and that means here and everywhere. And this is an evident complement to ubique by itself, the word on the logo for the Council on Foreign Relations, which many American members of the Pilgrim Society have belonged to. So that's the end of that write-up that... I think you know now why I wanted to read that and why it was so applicable. And you should recognize, again, all of those names were the same names that I talked about last week. And this idea of joining, of of having this relationship uh, beginning to get strengthened and encouraged and pushed between Britain and the United States, again, the West. And you have these gods that were the merchants that were working behind the scenes, all of these bankers, all of this money, all of this commerce, like uh, Smedley Butler said he was um, a muscle man for capitalism, pretty much. And again, he was at the service of the merchants. The merchants use governments. They use war. They use regulation. They use their money. And oil and drugs are big tools, too. And that's what Smedley Butler also said as he made areas a friendly place for oil interests. And yeah, all of this stuff, it, it all connects and it is all tied together. And it all can fit very well in this framework of the West versus the East, of the UK and America running the world, pretty much. And so that is definitely how I would set things up. Now, as we get into 
the oh, World War One, you to set some context, I guess, historically, at that period in time, the Ottoman Empire was growing. You have oil that's becoming the next gold, and people are seeing that oil is the future. They're just realizing that there actually is a good bit of oil in the Ottoman Empire. Germany has unified, and again, Germany's also the East. Germany has unified, and they are becoming an economic powerhouse. They are friendly with the Ottomans. All of this is a threat to the Western gods. Uh, the East is rising up here. And so what you end up having, and let's go back to the theme of war and false flags, the Americans were not very interested in getting into the war. So when you had war break out, and uh, I guess another side note that I have mentioned before is that prior to the war breaking out, the West, uh, Western Europe and America and Britain, they had already divided up the Ottoman Empire among themselves and talked about how they'd split it up and who would run what. So uh, the idea that the war was just about this one assassination of the Archduke, uh, it, yes, it was, but seeing as to how it was all strategized and planned ahead of time way before that, and probably that was just a spark that got it going, uh, yeah, that that's probably not the main reason why World War One happened. It probably would have happened anyway. It was being set up anyway. They were making these alliances and treaties and pushing them in such a way that all it would take was one small thing, and you would automatically have these this effect of dominoes falling down and just automatically rolling out this war. And so... With the war breaking out, Americans were not very interested. However, again, the gods of the West, you, the West has to dominate. These are the gods that want to dominate. They want power. They want influence, all of this stuff. And you can't have this threat of the East. And without America, the East definitely stood a better chance. And so America needed to get in this in order to secure the victory for the West but Americans, again, were not interested in getting in. So what happens? Well, you have a false flag. That's the way this goes. And so there is this ship, the Lusitania, that the Americans were using. It was a civilian ship, but they were using it to transport arms to the British. And Germany knew about this. Germany had subs in the area close to where the Lusitania would go. And Germany kept warning that they should not send the Lusitania to deliver arms. And the U.S. was like, oh, no, we wouldn't give arms to your enemies. We're neutral. You know, we're just staying out of this. This is just a civilian vessel. Well, obviously, Germany knew better and everybody else probably knew better. But uh, we kept doing it anyway, to the point that we ended up deliberately sending it into an area where we knew German subs were. We pulled off its escorts and sent it right towards the German sub that we knew was patrolling there. And uh, yes, guess what? The Germans uh, shot at the Lusitania. I believe they only fired once, but because there were arms on board, there were many subsequent explosions and people died. There were civilians, American civilians on board. And guess what? That is exactly what they needed. That's what the gods of the West needed to get the Americans on board was uh, the the innocent American civilians that died. And in a lot of ways, those civilians were innocent, but the fact that the gods above them had put them in that position and sacrificed their lives for the sake of their wealth, power, and influence, uh, that was very deliberate. That was not innocent at all. So this happens. Um, another side note would be that 
uh, Edward Mendel House, Colonel House. He was in a meeting with Churchill, and you've heard both of those names recently, and I believe in the quotes episode I did. But uh, they were both having a meeting discussing uh, the war and getting America involved, and Churchill specifically asked, what if the Lusitania was shot by a German sub? What if the Germans attacked it? And Howes believed that that would indeed bring the Americans into the war. So another uh, little interesting tidbit there. And also, I guess we should connect Colonel Howes, because I've talked about him a few times and haven't kind of given his background even more. So Colonel Howes, uh, he was called Colonel, wanted to be Colonel, but he wasn't actually a Colonel. But his name was Edward Mendel Howes. He was a diplomat, a politician, an advisor. He was often known as the Kingmaker, and Woodrow Wilson would be the king that he made. Now, prior to bringing Woodrow Wilson on board, he wrote this book, Philip Drew Administrator. And with this, it was very technocratic, very authoritarian, very progressive. He had these ideas that at the time did not exist in America. And uh, you should recognize that these are all things that Woodrow Wilson ended up implementing. And these ideas were things like income tax and high regulation by the government. He wanted the government involved on the boards of corporations, universal health care, a central bank, government that owns communication and transportation, and a league of nations. These were all ideas that came out of this book that Colonel Howes wrote. And so he also has connections to the roundtable groups that go back to uh, Cecil Rhodes, and he also has a lot of connections with the bankers. So basically, he was in with these with the gods of the West, and he came in, they found Woodrow Wilson, who was like-minded in a lot of their things that they wanted to pursue. They thought that they could probably control him and steer him, manipulate them. They got him into the president's chair and used him to do all the things. Keep in mind, uh, Woodrow Wilson was the one that implemented the income tax and increased regulation, got the government more involved in the corporate realm, started a central bank, the Federal Reserve, all of these types of things, proposed the League of Nations even, all of these ideas that Howes talked about prior to Wilson being on the scene, uh, that is exactly what got implemented. And so you end up with uh, the Lusitania getting hit, the Americans being outraged, and America does sure enough get involved in World War I, the West wins the war, and in the aftermath, the idea of the League of Nations is proposed by Woodrow Wilson, but the American people, again, are not as interested in getting involved in this global deal. And so when the League of Nations was denied, there were bankers that met, and they decided to influence America in order to enter a world government of sorts. So you have bankers, and I don't remember exactly who it was. I'll have to pull it up to look at it. But Colonel Howes met with some bankers. I believe they were representatives of the Rothschilds, the Rockefellers, J.P. Morgan, basically all the same names and types. And um, they're trying to figure out how do we get America tied up in all of this? How do we convince them to join? Because again, they wanted a world order. They wanted one that was ran by the West. They wanted the gods of the West to be victorious. So how do we do this? We have to get America on board because you know they're the key piece to this. So what they did was they decided they needed to influence American foreign policy, and they set up the group, the Council on Foreign Relations, in order to do this. 
simply just stepped away and took a break and looked all of this up so I could give you something a little more detailed on this because I didn't know. So what actually happened was that Colonel Howes had a group called the Inquiry, and this was a group that was assembled by Howes to negotiate solutions for the Paris Peace Conference. And after that all went down and America didn't join the League of Nations, uh, that group was kind of disbanding. And on May 30th, 1919, Baron Edmund de Rothschild of France hosted a meeting at the Majestic Hotel in Paris between the Inquiry, that group that Howes founded, and the Roundtable Groups, and that would be a reference to the Cecil Rhodes Roundtable Groups, to discuss a merger. The Inquiry was dominated by J.P. Morgan's people and included members such as Walter Lippmann, Herbert Hoover... Uh, Edward Howes, Colonel Howes himself, Alfred Milner, and others that you would probably recognize if you've been into this rabbit hole. But if you have not, you probably wouldn't. So I'm not going to get into all of them. But that's basically what went down. And again, they set up the Council on Foreign Relations. The main goal was to steer American foreign policy. And it still to this day is the biggest influence on American foreign policy, period. And they wanted America to get into the war, which America did. And that comes to that false flag of the Lusitania that I mentioned earlier. So at, at the Paris Peace Conference for World War I, you had another guy, a, an economist, and that would be Maynard Keynes. I've talked about Keynesian versus Austrian economics before. And Keynes actually specifically said that if they pursue the peace deal in the way that they are doing, it's just going to lead to another war, a second world war. There's no other way around that. And so he ended up actually leaving at some point. He didn't stay for the entire time, even though he was the top economist for his day. And this was something that, again, was not unforeseen. So what happened was that the Paris peace deal ended up being so strict and so punitive against Germany that it basically did set the stage for someone to rise up and reunify and claim nationalism and become this populist leader. And sure enough, that would have been Hitler. And uh, Germany decided to go ahead and uh, not really worry about all these restrictions of the peace deal and go ahead and start building up their army and their economy and all kinds of things like that anyway, and not pay all of these ridiculous reparations that they were told they had to pay. And in doing so, uh, this was, again, setting the stage for World War II. Germany was a growing powerhouse again. It was... Uh, let's say immoral, but highly effective. It was kind of cold, hard, scientific, more of a technocratic system. And uh, this is how it had developed just prior to World War II. Now, part of the rise of this system would be uh, basically the funding of Wall Street. Wall Street is the one who, it's all these bankers, it's these Western gods, the merchants. They were the ones that funded the Nazis and they were the ones that helped them with a lot of their technology and had a lot of factories there. A lot of the Western corporations had factories in Germany. And you can, again, see Anthony Sutton's book, 
that one is the rise, what is it, Hitler, no, Wall Street and the rise of Hitler, I think, or the Nazi party, I don't know. I will find that out and put it in the show notes. I forgot to put that book in the show notes last time because I think I referenced Sutton as well, so I'll try to put all of those in the link this time. But uh, he goes into detail about all of that and shows the exact numbers and all this kind of stuff. But basically, Wall Street funded the Nazis, uh, pumped them up, got them to be this powerhouse again, got them to be a true threat to the West. And arguably, that could have been because they wanted to spark that World War II that they had pretty much set up to begin with. They set it up with the peace deals of World War I to be a World War II. They wanted another war. It's very profitable, especially when you're funding both sides and making profits win or lose. And so this is what happened. They brought the East up in this kind of rigged way, and then they went to war and brought the East down. Now, the Western gods had funded the Nazis, but they wanted gains for themselves. They didn't just want to build up this nation across the sea, and they wanted to have governments that were subservient and that would support the Western gods, and the Nazi party was not really on board with that so much. So they ended up, uh, in the end, these Western corporations and Western bankers, they got reimbursements for all of their losses. So for example, there were some major US manufacturers that had factories that were actually producing some of the Nazi war machine. And those factories got destroyed in the war. And these companies not only were making a massive profit doing business there, they then got paid back for everything that was destroyed by the US government through reimbursements afterwards. So that worked really well. There was also this aspect of uh, increasing the scientific study that was going on under the Nazi regime. It was a good excuse. Again, they were highly immoral. So there were a lot of scientific um, experiments that would not have gone over well anywhere else. And it didn't go over well there in the end either. But with this, you had a lot of people that were very smart, had a lot of research, and they were doing lots of immoral things. And instead of uh, wasting that resource, we probably intentionally had all of those things going on and then just brought those people back over to America afterwards and gave them jobs and let them help to steer our own groups and entities and research projects. So that would be, I guess, the easiest reference for that would be Project Paperclip, where we brought over a lot of the Nazi scientists and the top Nazi officials, and they were uh, mainly working on the project, the space project in America, as well as some uh, consultations with like the CIA and setting up our intelligence operation, because theirs was very efficient, very good, and so on and so forth. So although the Nazis themselves as a regional territory lost, the nation of Germany lost, the Nazi ideology and the individuals themselves that were Nazis and everything that was going on with the research and everything else, it actually not only won, it spread and infiltrated all of the West. 
And this is very similar to the Prussian education model, where you had Prussia that had this system, they developed a system that was arguably immoral, but it was making citizens that were very subservient to their government, and that was something that would have been very appeasing to lots of other nations around the world. They were also the only ones that were doing it, and so people came over from all over the world to study in Prussia. It was the only place you could get a PhD for a time, aside from one exception, but that was also technically a branch of the Prussian model. And so uh, people came over, the elites especially, then they brought these ideas back to their own countries, and that's part of how the Prussian education model spread, especially throughout the West. Well, it's similar with the Nazi party, except instead of people coming and studying under the Nazis and going back, we just had the Nazis uh, do their thing and become experts in these fields. And then we just imported them all around the West to uh, run these projects and run things in our own countries. And so that would be how the Nazis arguably did not lose the war, even though Germany lost the war. But with World War II, again, we're having to do a lot of backtracking and side notes, so sorry if this is a little jumbled up. I'm doing the best I can here. There's a lot. And so with World War II, in order to win the war for the West, and ultimately that's what the West wanted. They wanted they wanted what they set up with the Nazi system, and uh, this could arguably be looked at as a bit of a test run for a technocratic model. It could have been an excuse for running these scientific experiments that were very immoral. It could have been just a way to gain profits through corporations by building up and artificially inflating this economy and making it a powerhouse and then making all of those gains as the corporations would. Um, there's so many different things, and it was probably a mix of all of these things. But uh, in order to actually win the war and then keep all of those gains and import all of those gains, the the U.S. had to get involved. And the U.S. was not very interested in getting involved. Yet again, you should see a pattern here. It was like the um, the war, the Spanish-American War, where it wasn't until the USS Maine got uh, sabotaged by the Spanish, is what they said at least, false flag, that people got on board. And it wasn't until the Lusitania got sunk for World War I when America got on board. Now, actually, the little catch there was that we didn't get involved in World War I right after the Lusitania. That is just what switched public support to the war, and then we came up with other excuses. Now, World War II, we knew that we couldn't get involved unless it was a justified war. And the only way to do that would be if we were attacked ourselves. And we couldn't get Germany to attack us. They were pretty busy. But our closest enemy in that battle would have been Japan. And Japan was a lot easier to manipulate as well. And so what we did was that we... Uh, sent ships over there, we blocked their oil imports, we basically shut them off and shut them down, and either they would go down themselves just because they couldn't access the things they needed, or they would retaliate and try to fight us. There was even a memo that had gone out about a year before, and I'm just going to read the Wikipedia entry. So if you are aware of anything at all related to the internet, you should know that Wikipedia is not going to give you a bunch of conspiracy theory stuff. They censor that kind of thing, and it doesn't have everything. So if it's on Wikipedia, this is the bare minimum. So uh, let me just read the first paragraph of this 
entry. The McCollum Memo, also known as the Eight Action Memo, was a memorandum dated October 7, 1940, more than a year before the Pearl Harbor attack, sent by Lieutenant Commander Arthur H. McCollum, who, quote, provided the president with intelligence reports on Japan and oversaw every intercepted and decoded Japanese military though the military code had not been broken yet, and diplomatic report destined for the White House, end quote. In his capacity as director of the Office of Naval Intelligence, Far East Asia section, it was sent to Navy Captain Dudley Knox, who agreed with the actions described within the memo, and Walter Stratton Anderson, who was a vice admiral of the Navy. Then, the memo outlined the general situation of several nations in World War II and recommended an eight-part course of action for the United States to take in regard to the Japanese Empire in the South Pacific, suggesting that the United States provoke Japan into committing an, quote, overt act of war. The memo illustrates several people in the Office of Naval Intelligence promoted the idea of goading Japan into war. Quote, it is not believed that in the present state of political opinion, the United States government is capable of declaring war against Japan without more ado. If by the elucidated eight-point plan, Japan could be led to commit an overt act of war, so much the better. And yeah, that's all I'll read there. But just a few notes to pull out of here. Um, our intelligence service, a lot of that started with the Office of Naval Intelligence. They were actually, they had deals with the mafia even back in World War One, And uh, yeah, a lot of corruption there. It's not new to the CIA to be using drugs and mafias and cartels and that kind of thing. That was going on long before. So that was interesting, as well as... One more thing that I can't remember what it was that stood out to me as I read that. Oh, the decoded um, Japanese uh, codes that we had gotten. So he did say that they had intercepted the military codes, but at that time, I don't think they had decoded all of them, whereas prior to Pearl Harbor, they had. A year later, they had decoded all of their codes and were listening in and could decipher everything the Japanese were saying. So that was actually part of the evidence that we knew Pearl Harbor was happening. But this memo and other information would point out that not only did we know it was happening, we uh, planned it and provoked it and wanted it to happen. So like even when they were coming over, we had decoded their code so we could hear that. We had, I think, four different people overseas that kept sending things to Washington saying that Japan was planning an attack on Pearl Harbor. And that was acknowledged as well. Then you had the fact that we moved out our very expensive ships out of the harbor for a, quote, training exercise the morning of Pearl Harbor, and on and on and on. There was even a military investigation that showed that they did know ahead of time. And that's our own military saying that. So, yes. So that was World War II. That's what got us into it. And I think that covered a lot of the whys and things associated to it within that context. So moving on to the next big war, I would say that would be Vietnam. Vietnam was arguably about controlling the drug trade. There was a lot that we had done, some meddling in that region that basically set things up uh, to be Vietnam, this war. And uh, this was an issue where the CIA had basically been funding the drug trade over there, and you had this uh, 
the bankers and the CIA funding it, and you had the military-industrial complex that really wanted a new war because they make a lot of money on that. And so between the two, it was something where they needed an excuse to fight and to build up arms. And if they could do that, then the bankers would make a much, bunch of money. The CIA would make uh, a lot of money on the illegal arms trade, because if we could go in, then they would fully control that drug trade instead of just finance it and be involved. And then the military-industrial complex obviously would make a whole lot of money. So in the 1950s, you had French intelligence. They were getting raw opium from the north, and then they processed it through mercenaries near Saigon. And after a time, the French were actually overthrown, and that's when the U.S. steps in. This would be where the CIA comes into play here. The U.S. creates South Vietnam and uses the Vietnamese Air Force and the CIA's Air America, which was uh, basically CIA plans that planes that would run drugs under the name Air America, to transport opium. So again, this is just the background that we had set up this drug trade. We had stepped in after the French left, and the CIA was running the drug trade out of Vietnam. We'd also done a lot of meddling in the area, and the military-industrial complex, and the bankers were hungry for another war to profit off of. And all of this, basically all these incentives aligned, and that's usually how it is. There's many, many, many different things that add up. Everybody wins uh, virtually, at least at this level, when you talk about the level of the gods. And uh, when you get down to the little men, yes, none of them win. They usually die. They're sacrificed. It's human sacrifice. But uh, again, going back to the war, how we got into it was, of course, another false flag. It was the Gulf of Tonkin incident, where we said that a ship was attacked by the Vietnamese, and it was a U.S. ship, and then it turned out that that was actually a false report that never happened. There was uh, uh, some CIA agents on board and some other really sketchy things. Interestingly enough, I believe it was, oh, who was it? Uh, the guy that was the main guy for The Doors, the band, Jim Morrison. His dad was on the ship that claimed to have been attacked. And if you really look into it, there are so, so many connections to musicians and actors and Hollywood, and the intelligence services of America. So many connections. But uh, that is not a trail worth getting into here. But anyway, so the Gulf of uh, Tonkin happened. Then you had the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, which is what got us to send ground troops to Vietnam and really got the war going. Now, the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, it turns out, was written before the Gulf of Tonkin Incident happened. And that incident is something that actually never happened. So it's kind of a double false flag going on there. And so with that, that got us into war either way because of the false flag and Americans were not happy that Americans got shot at and we got involved. We didn't really want to win the war. We just wanted it to last on and on and on. So the bankers, the military industrial complex, the drug trade could keep going under the excuse in the fog of war, all of these kinds of things. So for example, um, our airplanes were not allowed to shoot enemy planes if they were on the ground. If they saw all these planes lined up on the ground, they couldn't shoot them. They had to wait for them to take off. Even once they took off, they weren't allowed to shoot them until they were shot at first. And then they could shoot the enemy. And that was uh, something that was also told to ground troops, although I don't know if they always obeyed that, and I don't think they did. 
Um, also, I think 80, was it 80 something or maybe even 90% of the airstrikes that were called in during Vietnam, where the ground troops would find something, and it would be an enemy encampment or facility or something, they'd call in an airstrike, and over 80% were denied throughout the war. So again, there's lots of ways that that war could have ended much earlier, and even just the rules of the war that were handed down from the brass above uh, made it such that that war would never end, or at least it wouldn't end anytime soon. It's kind of like the wars in the Middle East, which I guess would be where we'd go next. With the wars in the Middle East, it's a very similar thing. Just like that area in Asia was this triangle of drug trafficking related to opium, uh, this had a lot of this activity had shifted to the Middle East after uh, Vietnam and that era, so a few decades later. Now a lot of it's going on in the Middle East in what was known as the Golden Crescent, and that would be the area of like Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Iran. And in Afghanistan, for example, the Taliban, uh, those evil enemies of ours, they had decreased the output of opium by 90% in 2001. And then the U.S. invades Afghanistan, and Afghanistan then produces 90% of the world's illicit opium, period, from getting decreased down to 10% of its previous output and only being a portion of the world's opium. Now they're 90% of the world's opium after America comes in and invades and takes over and starts guarding the poppy fields and whatnot. So yeah, that's how it goes. But again, drugs are involved. You had the US military that was actually defending poppy fields and facilities processing plants because we said that that was the livelihood of the locals and we care about the small guys. So uh, we're going to do this. And of course, there's lots of other involvement there. Um, in addition to these things, just like Asia, we had done a lot of meddling in the region in the Middle East. We had set up a lot of the uh, families that were the ruling families of the areas after World War One, And by this time, we had done a few coups and we overthrew a few of the people we didn't like and so on and so forth. You also have this issue of the East versus the West. Again, the Western gods versus the Eastern gods. The Eastern gods are not big fans of the Western gods. The Western gods had pushed a culture that was heavily focused on individualism and sexuality and lots of things that the Eastern gods thought were uh, immoral and wrong and would hurt and harm traditional culture, lots of things like this. In addition, it's just this conflict of the East versus the West as a whole, the economies, all of that kind of thing. Oil was a big deal by this time, and so the East had a lot of funding, and all of this. You had all of these conflicts. And so with the Muslim countries, not very fond of the Western countries, you also had all of these wealthy and powerful um, rulers, I guess, and countries from the oil supply. They were largely independent from the West in a lot of ways. They're arguably could have been a chance for some unification in the Middle East if this continued onward. Again, they were unified before World War I with the Ottoman Empire, but having a unified Ottoman Empire was a bit of a threat, especially when it combined with, an, with a unified Germany that was way too much. We couldn't take that. 
So we don't want that to happen again as the West, because if the East unifies, that is a threat to the West. While there are different sects of uh, the Muslim religion, uh, most of those countries in that area were Muslim now. And even under the Ottoman Empire, it was a mix of, I think it was like three different religions that had to find a way to work together and had representation in their different councils and this kind of stuff. But by this point, it was they're mostly all Muslim, and so it'd be even easier to unify. We also had this deal with Saudi Arabia, the U.S. did, and that's where the idea of the petrodollar comes from, where we would support Saudi Arabia with our military and give them weapons and these kinds of things, and in exchange, they would make sure that no one could buy oil except by using dollars. So dollars, since they had already become the global reserve currency after World War I and Bretton Woods, now they had even further backing because uh, we weren't on the gold standard anymore, which was kind of the point of Bretton Woods. Now we had backing by oil because no one could buy oil except for with dollars. And Saudi Arabia had some countries in the Middle East that they were not so fond of. And in addition, there were some threats with some of these countries producing more oil and gaining dominance and Saudi Arabia not having as much control. So all of this comes into play. Again, there are so many different incentives that were all aligned, and there are many more than I'm mentioning here. But we end up going into the Middle East. You could argue the false flag for doing so would have been 9-11. And... I don't know if I can even get into 9-11. There's so much going on there. Um, I guess things that are relevant that correlate to things I've already said today, the CIA, that'd be a good connection. So number one, we had set up uh, bin Laden and the Taliban. We... uh, basically found them. They The Taliban was not very well liked in the areas they were in. They got kicked out of a lot of cities. They were pretty small because they were a little too extreme. And we found them and thought that these would be great moderate rebels that we could arm and train and fund and grow to fight the Russians in Afghanistan. So that's what we did. And they did wear down the Russians, and it was very successful. Now, there was a consulate in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia that we used to get these CIA assets, Obama, or sorry, Osama bin Laden and the Taliban in and out of these different countries in the region to fight the Russians. And so there's this one uh, basically CIA front consulate in Saudi Arabia that we use to do that to move people back and forth. Well, it just so turns out that the majority of the hijackers for 9-11 came through this exact same consulate. There's even a whistleblower that came out and said that they were basically forced into passing on uh, people's paperwork when the paperwork wasn't even completely filled out, much less correct. And so, yes, something sketchy going on there as well. And again, we wanted to get involved in the Middle East. There's a lot of incentives lined up, but we needed uh, that to be a provoked attack in order for Americans to go along with it. Again, it's just the same pattern of a false flag gets us into the war and try to find a war that doesn't end anytime soon because we realized from Vietnam and from some other examples that that was very profitable and that worked very well. So, we get involved with this never-ending war. You also have the excuse of terrorism being this enemy that we need to battle from now on, the war on terror. Uh, Terrorism is an ideology. You can't battle it directly, and it never goes away. So the things like the Patriot Act, they never go away. They're still here. The TSA, that was supposed to be temporary too. That is definitely still here. And on and on and on. Department of Homeland Security, uh, so much growth in the bureaucracy, and so many things going on behind the scenes. 
But uh, yeah, I'm not really going to get into 9-11, actually. Now that I realize that I'm already an hour into the episode, I don't have time for that. That will be a story for another time. But there are many rabbit trails to go down with 9-11. And so you had the false flag, you had the war and the Middle East. The war in the Middle East lasted on forever and ever and ever, it seemed. It was one of the longest wars that America has ever been involved with. It might have been the longest set of wars, I believe it was. And so that was the next one. Now, uh, we also had other excuses besides 9-11. You had 9-11 as the false flag. You had the excuse of weapons of mass destruction that we had to come in and get, which was later actually admitted that they did not exist. That is not something that was hidden. You had the issue of babies being thrown from incubators, where what turned out to be the daughter of... Uh, what was it, the daughter of some official of a country or the ambassador or something, and uh, she had interest in getting the Americans to come in and help her family out and help their side, and she made up the story of troops coming in and taking babies out of incubators and throwing them on the floor and killing them, and it was all horrible, and she was crying, and yeah, and then it turned out that, again, false flag. You also had one of the final false flags. This would have been under President Trump for the United States. And this was that Assad gassed his own people, and therefore we need to bomb Syria. And then it later turned out through investigation that he did not gas his own people, that that was not chlorine gas that killed people. And yeah, we bombed him anyway. So again, it's just this pattern. False flag attack, false flag attack, false flag attack. You got drugs in the background. You have the CIA in the background, intelligence services. You've got, uh, in general, the UK wins behind the scenes as well as Israel, but the US is the one doing all the fighting. And all of this supports the, the West over the East. And that's how it goes. You even have the Soviet Union as an example, where the Soviet Union was largely financed by the U.S. And I, I could just stack China onto this, or maybe I'll mention that afterwards. So you have the Soviet Union, they're financed, we gave them technology from the West. It was kind of like Germany, but from a different angle. It was an attempt at trying this communist version. So kind of like how the West had funded the Nazi party, and that was a regime that was very technocratic and was along the lines of what we were going for as an excuse to do a lot of stuff that we couldn't do where we are, and then we just imported that back in. Soviet Union, very similar. We financed them, we gave them technology, we set them up. Uh, this time it was under communism. There's a lots of control, lots of power, lots of wealth at the top, which is generally the goal of the gods or of the elites. And if it was successful, the goal was to merge capitalism, capitalist systems for full control with economic productivity and growth. So what you would have would be these capitalist systems that are uh, very productive and grow value and they grow themselves. And you merge that with communism that was highly controlled and had this small elite clique at the top and had a lot of influence over the people and over the things that happen under its system. So you merge those two together and that would be a potentially very powerful system. The Soviet Union, though, did gain a good bit of power, and it really wasn't sustainable. So for both of those reasons, it was time to end it, and it was ended. So uh, with sustainability, for example, you couldn't get market prices from things in a communist system, and uh, you can ask, I guess, Mises or Hayek about that, and uh, you can read why that does not work at all. But uh, yeah, we ran that experiment, and guess what? There were a lot of Soviet researchers and 
operatives that ended up on the U.S. side. And you have, for example, in the quotes episode I did two episodes ago, I believe it was, I read the quote about the guy from the Ford Foundation saying that the goal was to merge the American capitalist system with the communist system in the Soviet Union. So that was an overt goal. He said that came down from the White House, from Washington, and these nonprofit foundations were involved in this, and all of this was going on. So uh, that could be, you know, that's the Cold War, but still, that's the Soviet Union as uh, another attempt, and maybe the first big attempt at setting up, I guess the second, you had the Nazis, but setting up this system and seeing how it goes, taking notes, taking the best and the brightest afterwards, and then trying it again somewhere else with a different tweak. And so the next place they tried it with a different tweak would have been uh, China. So Kissinger and Rockefeller went to China and basically got them to come on board into the world markets and join the modern economy and do things their way. Um, they blended technocracy with communism and capitalism. So it's this idea of taking the best of all these worlds, the best of the Nazis, the best of the Soviet Union, the best of the US. Let's combine them all together. And again, the best is as defined by the Western gods that want complete control and power and wealth over everything. So uh, yeah, not the best for us, but the best for them. So they combined all of these things into this system for China. Uh, we gave them, again, we financed them, we gave them technology, we set them up, we built factories over there, all kinds of stuff. And you can imagine Kissinger, Rockefeller, all of these types of people involved with setting up China at that time. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. So there is this giant influx of money and technology from the West. You had market growth for the West. So the Western corporations, they had a lot of growth potential by outsourcing things to China, by building up factories in China, and the growth of the Chinese economy, they would then buy more stuff. And so you had lots of growth going on for the West. And it was also a test case for things like population management with mass surveillance and this te technocratic rule. It could easily be used as a boogeyman as well, kind of like the Soviet Union. And uh, you could say, oh, it's the, it's, the, it's the commies, you know, communism is the enemy, or it's the Nazis and these fascists are the enemies, or, you know, they, they're kind of both in China. So, uh, yes, the Chinese are bad and they're doing all these bad things, and they are, but... Yes, we are the ones that set that up. That's a test run, and eventually that'll either get merged or that'll get destroyed, probably destroyed. So that brings us up to modern times. I'm going to try to cover this uh, fairly quickly here since this is a long episode, but I think I've set up plenty of context. I did set some up in the previous episode and ended it with some uh, contacts with Crimea and Ukraine and Russia. And I think in this episode, I've set up the context for this framework of the West versus the East and this pattern of false flags and war and drugs and all of these things and oil. And so that's really what's going on here, the dollar as well. So today you have the East being probably Russia, Turkey, Iran, China, and others. They are making deals uh, with in regards to oil without using the dollar. They're using other currencies. This has been going on for a few years and a few countries that have done this. But uh, of course, you know, this is a threat to not only the dollar, but the West as a whole. We also don't have control over that oil very much, whereas through Saudi Arabia, we have a good bit of control coming out of the Middle East. Now, 
you had this Russian pipeline to Germany where they were going to pump natural gas and this was going to uh, grow this relationship between Germany and Russia. And this would be a more unified Eastern Europe. Germany has always historically been thought of as the East as well as obviously Russia as well. And so you get a more unified Eastern Europe and one that is more dependent from the dollar and from oil. Now, you had the coup in the Ukraine in, I believe it was 95 under Obama, which I mentioned in another episode. And uh, the goal was to get the Ukraine more friendly with the West and less friendly with the East. Again, we stopped this growth uh, and this unification of the Eastern Empire, but uh, that's not really how it was working. So uh, we've done this. This has been our policy in the Middle East as well. The goal is a balance of power. That was the goal for the Soviets. That's that's been the way we've done this uh, the entire time. It's not that we want these countries to go away. It's not that we want to invade and take control of these countries. It's that we want a balance of power. And that balance is not an equal balance. That balance would be the West is very dominant on the top, and the East and everybody else is balanced below them, and that no one ever is able to rise up to equality or, uh, you know, heaven forbid, be an actual threat to gain dominance. And so we want this power, uh, this power balance, this balance of power, and in order to get it, what we usually do is we want conflict. We want war. We want them fighting against each other. We want them divided. And again, this is not what's happening right now in the East. For some uh, side note, uh, smaller examples of threats to the dollar specifically, since that's very relevant here, you could look at Gaddafi, who talked about doing a gold-backed currency for all of Africa, and he was shortly after overthrown in Libya. And after he was overthrown, kind of like the Taliban, after we uh, overthrew the Taliban in Afghanistan, then opium production went through the roof. Well, after we overthrew Gaddafi in Libya, all of a sudden there's open slave markets going on there. Uh, Yeah, we sure did make those people so much better off. And then you had, what was the other threat? Saddam Hussein, who was business partners with lots of Western corporations, the Bushes. Uh, There wasn't really a whole lot of animosity there, but he talked about doing a gold-backed currency, and yeah, that was a threat, and probably part of the reason why he was overthrown as well. You even had a talk of Kennedy talking about this, but Kennedy uh, hit all the buttons. He talked about getting rid of the CIA. He uh, talked about auditing the Federal Reserve and didn't want to start foreign wars. And yes, there was talk of going to going back to a gold standard for the dollar, which would be a huge threat. So keep in mind that with fiat money, with money that is not backed by anything but a promise, they can create money out of nothing anytime they want and then use that money. That is how the war machine gets funded. That's how the military industrial complex gets funded. Going back to the very beginning of this episode, the Western gods, what do they use in this age of economics? They're merchants. They're using money, oil, drugs, and governments. They use the governments for the regulations in the war, which help them. But also, that cycles right back around to the money. They can be fed more and more money if they can get more and more war. And they can be the ones to profit off of that through the banking interests, through the military-industrial complex, through their corporations, all of these kinds of things. 
So coming back up to modern times, you've got Russia, who is part of the East. They are uh, starting to be this threat to the dollar. There is actually talk as well about backing the ruble by gold. So uh, yeah, you have that factor as well. You have this oil independence as well. So the East really has, they got the economies, they've got the factories, they've got the oil, they've got the natural gas, they've got the hard money, they've got the gold itself at least. They've got all of this stuff, and they're starting to become more more and more friendly. This trade between Russia and Germany, they say when goods don't cross borders, troops do. Well, goods were starting to cross borders more and more, and especially with this pipeline into Europe, where Europe would be less dependent on the West for its oil resources, less dependent on the dollar as well. And all of these things are really adding up, and this is usually how it goes, where you have all of these factors and incentives that all line up in the same direction, and guess what happens? Usually a false flag. So we will see how that goes. Um, to look ahead a little bit, I think it's uh, it's helpful to look at the way that warfare is fought today and how it has been fought in the past. So if you go back to the previous age, uh, that would be the age of empires, there were there's a big focus on physical control and on militaries and physical fighting and just beating people through brute force. That was kind of the way. And as we get into the age of economics after that, it was more about the kinds of things that we've been talking about today, money and oil, economic control, sanctions, these kinds of things. But modern warfare is shifting into the theme of the age of science, and this is different. This is more about data and in individual integration into a technological system, bringing everybody on board to this thing. And again, that uh, feeds the data, and the data feeds the control for the individuals, and it's just this cycle. You have more technological control overall over everything, and this would include the economies, the markets, resources, all kinds of things like that. You have warfare that is much more psychological. You have more propaganda and censorship. It's all about the narrative and things like that, telling a story, getting people convinced of a thing. And this is the way war is fought in today's world. So I've said in previous episodes that uh, we are at a point in history, and I think I'm probably coming up on some episodes that I'll do on historical patterns and cycles, but I'll get into that more then. But I've talked about this before, where we're coming up in this time where we're probably going to have a big crisis point. And COVID was, I don't think, the event. Uh, the event is typically a war that happens after the economic event. And uh, hopefully what I was hoping before and still would hope for is that that would be an economic war, a cyber war. And that is still possible. The other possibility would be that in order to uh, squash this threat from the East, the West starts a ground war in Europe. And if the West does this, then you would get Germany involved, you would have Russia, you'd have China, you'd have Iran, you'd have all of these uh, threats to us, basically the, the Eastern empires. And on the West, the main fighting front would technically still be the East. The main fighting front would be Germany and would be the EU. And uh, if you remember, the UK broke out of the EU. Uh, I don't know how long ago that was, a decade ago or so. And so uh, the UK and America are officially outside of the context of that war, if that were, were, war were to happen. And if it were to happen, especially a ground war, then you have the destruction of infrastructure, you have the destruction of their economies, you have basically all of these countries taken down a level, taken down a notch, 
And then, of course, who would step in to pick up the pieces? It would be the West. And that would be very beneficial. That even goes back to Bretton Woods. So after World War II, all the economies and the infrastructure in Europe was mostly destroyed. And America stepped up and said that, hey, we've got the dollar. It's backed by gold. You don't really have the ability to back your currency by gold. So what you can do is back your currency by the dollar. And in turn, it's backed by gold. So you'll be fine and it'll be great. Let's all do this. And they did. And that was uh, the way, the reason that America could do this was because we were untouched by the war largely. And so that's the way it went. That's how the dollar was the world reserve currency, set up the brand new, uh, basically monetary system for the world. And that gets us to where we are today. You could have a repeat of the same thing where you're starting to see more threats again. You have those threats all squashed. You have those economies brought down. You have more reliance on the dollar. Probably not the dollar, though. Probably go ahead and switch to a central bank digital currency or something of the sort. And it would be the perfect the perfect transition into something like that. So that is also a possibility. Another interesting thing to note here is that you're dealing with all of these same countries that we set up in the past that were the boogeymen of the past and took them down. And so if you go all the way back to World War I and World War II, that would have been Germany. You go to the Cold War, and uh, that would be Russia. That would be the Soviet Union. And now we're going into our newest country that we have brought into its own the way it is now, and that would be China. And we have not brought it down yet. And so basically, you have all of these older areas that we've messed with a lot in the past, even getting into the, to the Middle East and Iran. We've had a lot of interventions in Iran in the past as well, and lots of the other players that are involved here. But the big guys are Germany, Russia, and China. And with this, these, again, are these entities that we set up and we tested these things. So we tested in Germany this idea of, I guess, fascism, but outright fascism under a populist leader and doing things that were very cold and efficient and industrial, that kind of thing. And we tested that with Germany and uh, brought it back down. And then we tested the full communist route with the Soviet Union, and that was tried out, and that couldn't really make it. We figured that we needed some markets. We needed some price mechanisms. We needed entrepreneurship and innovation, these kinds of things. And so what you then have is a combination of these things in the form of China, where you have a country that is very efficient, very cold, that is very industrialized, and that the economy is booming because it is involved in markets. It is spitting out some innovation and some new things. It does have these price mechanisms. And so it's kind of got the best of both worlds because it's also uh, purely communist. And it's also uh, something that has full control over its citizens. So it's even shifting into this next realm of technocracy. And China appears to be what we're going for. So it could be that China is that. And that that's what we're shifting into. That doesn't necessarily mean we won't bring it down because we want this to be run by the West. Again, the idea of the UK and the US running the world. So we still do have to get rid of China, but then we're just going to mimic that model for our technocracy of the West that runs everything else. Another interesting thing to note here is that Germany 
we brought them down, and now they're starting to come back in their own. And they're doing it in a different way, but a way that does seem to be working for them. Same with the Soviet Union. They got completely taken out, and now Russia is starting to come back on the scene and coming to it through its own ways that are different than the ways that we had set up. And more than likely, China will do the same thing. It will come back up in a way that is different than the way that we set them up to be. And so with this, these nations are starting to come up and come into their own, on their own power, with their own ways and methods, and we can't really have that. So again, that would be why, personally, I would guess that we're going to have some sort of conflict here that will result in those areas being brought down and the West taking this leadership role and running the world. Now, some would argue that they have pushed things too far. They're pushing it too fast. People argued that with COVID, for example, and yet they got away with it for two years and were very successful in what they did. So I don't really know. I can't tell the future and I will just leave it at that. So that should give you some context for where you are or where we are, give you a framework to look at this under. And stepping back and looking at this from a very macro perspective, I think adds some perspective. I think it adds some context. I think it is helpful to kind of review this. Even me just reviewing this material as I've gone through these past few episodes, it's been helpful for me to kind of look at it from a more broad perspective and be able to tie things together a little better, see the patterns a lot easier, and hopefully that is doing the same thing for you as well. So with that, this episode is much longer than I have been doing lately, at least, although it is still shorter than season one corruption and conspiracy episodes, which were two to three hours, I believe. And so if you want more on those things, go back to that. I'll link those in the show notes. I'll try to remember to link the Sutton book in the show notes and anything else I mentioned, but if I don't remember it now, I probably won't remember it then. But you are always free to email me and ask me any questions or for any resources or anything of the sort. You can also message me, I guess, on Twitter, technically, and any other way that you find. There might be a way to do it on the website, too. Who knows? So please feel free to do so. Thank you for your support. Thank you for listening. Thank you to those who are giving money to help this podcast be free and to exist without coming completely out of my pocket. Thank you for those of you that have left ratings and reviews. We do need more of those. So if you have not done that, please do so. That is extremely helpful. Until next time, I'm out. Peace. This has been our Foundations Podcast. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye.